I paused the entire time. I was just thinking, I don't want to blow my nose. <laughs> uh, just laughing, thinking about uh, me blowing my nose being the intro to the podcast. Uh, man, I'm just so I'm so congested. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Penalty Loop Podcast, a podcast about biathlon by Jordan Gottschalk from Penalty Loop and RJ Weiss from Biathlon Analytics. Hey, hey how you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are you? Uh, doing okay. A little bit under the weather. Uh, COVID got me, so uh, here I am. Uh, yeah. I apologize in advance if you guys hear me sniffling and coughing throughout the episode. I, I think I did my best to mute my mic, but uh, if you hear it, I, I did my best. Yeah, no, it's uh, unfortunate, but uh, it sounds like everybody has to go through it at least once nowadays, but uh, I still haven't had it, or at least not not that I was aware of it. So, Oh, thank goodness. But our, uh, our next guest, I think he mentioned in his interview that he uh, he has gone through COVID at some point mm-hmm. yep. as well. Uh, we talked to uh, Jules Bernat from the uh, Canadian men's biathlon team um, while he was in uh, in Quebec, in Quebec City at this point. And um, yeah, it was really, really interesting conversation. Um a lot of fun to chat with him. A lot of insight on uh, on you know what we what we strive to do, like getting an insight in the life of a biathlete, mm-hmm. and uh, yep. yeah, just uh, gen- genuinely uh, nice guys to chat to. And um, again, uh, with as with the uh, Matthias episode, we've uh, cut this in uh, in two episodes of uh, just under an hour. So um, I uh, I hope you will enjoy it. And um, if you want to connect with us, you can always reach us on Twitter or on Penalty Loop Podcast at gmail.com. Through the eyes of. Hey, good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm good. You? Very good. Thank you. Jordan, how are you? Well, a little under the weather, but I think we're surviving down here. Yeah. If you don't have uh, thunderstorms or power outages, it's uh, medical issues. <laughs> it's one thing or another with me every single time. <laughs> yeah, and that well, while... we're recording. I say we're recording early enough in the day that thunderstorms shouldn't be a problem. So right, right. Well, COVID shouldn't be a problem either because it doesn't exist in Florida. <laughs> I've heard. No, 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 no COVID here. <laughs> Let's uh, keep the politics out. Uh, Jules, so much. Uh, thank you so much for for joining us for the podcast. Um, uh, it was a, an interesting connection because uh, I, as listeners know, I do pot, um, biathlon in, in Canmore. And um, as uh, most biathlon followers know, uh, Jules is a, is a person that is fairly easy to recognize from a distance uh, due to the, his, his tall posture and uh, his uh, hairdo. So uh, when I recognized him, I was like, okay, well, th- this is a, a great chance to connect and uh, see if he'd be interested to join us and uh he rapidly said yes, so uh, it's uh, it's great to to meet you in person and uh, to have this conversation. So thanks again for coming on. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I I have to tell you in advance that I I got a little bit of insights on you from uh, from your buddy Nate, 
who oh, uh, cool. is now shooting in my team, but he has probably trained with you in the uh, in the youth. Uh, we trained together for a bit, but he was he was always in Canmore. I was always in Quebec, and he yeah. was uh, my place to go in the, in Canmore for a long time. So we okay. we shared a lot of time together uh, in the in Coda. Do you know about Coda houses? Um, I vaguely know that there's one at uh, is it Grassy Hills? No, Grassy uh, yeah, just, Lakes. There? Yeah, just beside the Grassy's Lake parking lot, there's like four or five of them. I don't know the exact story of those, but uh, they've been built, from what I know, for the Calgary uh, Olympics. So I was in '88, okay. right? Yep. And uh, so they were were the officials or workers' houses for the event, and then they stayed in the loop, uh, yeah, for the sport communities to have like affordable uh, housing for um, for athletes or people around nice. the sport. Um, so yeah, I think that's uh, that's the story of it. And so uh, Nate, he knew a guy I knew, whatever. Like we connected in the in all those national events and all that. And then I ended up starting, uh, yeah, to live at their place uh, when I was in Canmore, and we had nice. a lot of fun together in the in those houses. Very convenient for me. I'd, I'd be able to walk to the biathlon center, and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I would spend like. I'd say a month and a half every year out there for like three or four years in a row. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, and even so I've seen him only kind once. Of a, and kind of a roommate. Yeah. Yeah, they don't they don't look like a party house at all. <laughs> no. That was fun. It was a uh, fun time. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, so uh, before we uh, start going into some uh, some introductions and uh, and, and further on. I just, uh, because I know we have quite a bit of uh, European listeners as well, and I just wanted to emphasize the uh, the distances in Canada. So uh, so when we're talking about, you know, oh, we did a quick flight from Quebec to Canmore or something, <laughs> uh, just give a bit of perspective. So uh, Alberta, the province that Canmore is in, is uh, roughly the same square kilometer size as France. Uh, it's only four and a half million people compared to 68 million in France. but um, And Quebec is then uh, about two and a half times bigger. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jules, but uh, I think Quebec, uh, a majority of it is is a lot of ice and snow and trees and not too many people. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I think eight and a half million people, is that correct? That'd be Roughly. around, the, yeah, what I think, yeah. Yeah. And then so size-wise, Canada is about the same size as Europe in total. And just for reference, so Canmore to Sherbrooke, if you would drive it, it's uh, just under 4,000 kilometers, which is comparable to, um, I looked up to World Cup events that seem the furthest away from uh, Le Grand Bonin in France to Contiolati in Finland, and that's about 3,200 kilometers. So just uh, to give that a little bit of perspective on uh, on the on the dif- distances we're uh, we're starting to yeah. talk I've, about, I've driven that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the halfway is beautiful, if, in my experience, yeah. through through Quebec and and uh, Ontario, and then Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and and uh, the prairies are yeah you know they're beautiful in its own right, but uh, yeah. Well, maybe, what maybe people say is like when you leave from Quebec and Quebec. Quebec to Canmore isn't even the biggest distance you can make, right? Because you could add right. another 2,000 mm-hmm. kilometers to get to St. John and you can add another maybe 1,000, 2,000 from Canmore to get to Tofino. 
Yeah, so it's, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, if you leave from Quebec, you get to Ontario, it's nice. And then and then you get to northern Ontario and then you have a thousand kilometers of just wood and you don't see anything. And then you get to Thunder Bay <laughs> and then that's the big point from Thunder Bay. You yeah. can just point at the mountains and wait. Yeah. And then three hours, yeah, no, what, a day and a half later, you're home. But yeah, it's uh, quite a long drive. We, we've done it with uh, three drivers in a car. Well, actually, we were five drivers in two different cars leaving from Squamish, coming back to Sherbrooke after um, a full summer of uh, vibing out west. And uh, yeah, two days and a half. The car broke half an hour from home. Oh, no. <laughs> but, we, but we made it. Yeah, we made it. We, wow. We've been able to get a ride for the rest. <laughs> Wow. But, uh, oh, you know, it's, yeah, it's quite a, quite a big distance, uh, quite hard, I'd say to, um, yeah, for me, like I've been asked for a long time to make the move to go to Canmore, uh, mm -hmm. for training and all that. I enjoy it. I like the people there. I like the facility and all that, but, uh, you know, Canada is so big. I, I don't feel home out there and it's far mm -hmm. from, far from my family, far from, what I know far also from my language and all that. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah this being so big, I'll go there for camps, but it's, uh, yeah, I had to, uh, to, to work quite a bit to be recognized as a, like in a good environment here for training mm -hmm. and for, yeah, being a better racer. And, uh, yeah, it turns out it worked well, uh, well yeah. enough. So, but yeah, no, the distance are pretty big. Uh, I, I, well, did you know Carson a bit from, uh, he stopped no, I, racing, but yeah, he was from PEI and he would always say that a flight home for him, uh, no, yeah. How to say it? Yeah. From PEI to go to Europe or to go to Canmore, the same distance. Yeah. So that would, yeah. that would be, yeah, quite a, quite oh, a way to say it. PEI is uh, Prince Edward Island mm -hmm. is yeah. uh, on the east side of, of Canada, but still pretty far from the. Yeah, <laughs> um, farthest eastern point. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, we're we're actually it makes me want to jump to a, to a question I had. Um, so you speak French fluently, you speak English fluently, um, which is you know not abnormal for people from from the mm -hmm. province of Quebec. But you also speak other languages, amongst uh, which is Dutch or Bel Belgian Flemish. Mm -hmm. um, that's from family roots. Yeah, so yeah, a bit of mix of that. So my mother is from Netherlands. She grew up there. She went to university there too. And then she came for an exchange in uh, Canada and she met my dad. And then they, uh, well, she flew back to Netherlands and then my dad uh, went to the Netherlands. They got married and they came back. Uh, and my dad also is Belgian. Both his parents uh, were born mm. and raised in Belgium and they went to university there and then they came to Quebec uh, to work uh, in the chemistry program, whatever. That was a long time ago. I don't know the exact story, <laughs> but yeah. So my dad is Belgian. Uh, my mom is Dutch. And then, yeah, I ended up spending some time in the Netherlands and well, in Friesland, which is yep. a province in the north. Uh, went to school there for a couple of months. I didn't spend a full year, but enough to enough to kind of live it, to, to connect with the roots uh, yeah. and to, yeah, to speak a bit of the language i i lost a bit of that but uh still able to understand a couple of words here and there or get nice. yeah get around stuff in the in the country yeah yeah it's funny i uh 
uh, noticed a picture of you on Instagram at some point with some Dutch fans with the Dutch flag and stuff. So I was like, oh, that's that's interesting that he uh, yeah has some some Dutch connection there. But uh, yeah, yeah, we don't see many Dutch fans, but uh, when when I when I see them, I'm always happy to see that they don't have a team, but they still come, they still watch. Yeah. And always happy to uh, to tell them that yeah, I'm yeah, I'm happy to represent as as little as I can, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you uh, did you happen to get an invite for the for the Belgium Biathlon Center opening? I did, yeah. Uh, oh, cool. But I told I told them it was it was a bit far from home. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. we're gonna go to the Blink Fest with the, the with part mm. of the national team. Cool. Um, but yeah, already in the winter we're traveling so much to go to events mm. to go to yeah. the World Cups. Uh, we stay there quite a bit. So the summer for me is. Is basically the time I can spend home, the time I can spend yeah. with my family, with my friends here. So that's uh, and yeah, also it's a uh, it's a bit of money to fly all the way there. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yeah, it Quite doesn't. A bit. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I I did get like they told me about it. I would have really liked to go if it was you know three hour drive. I would have gone for sure. But yeah, mm -hmm. it was a seven hour flight. So yeah. For sure. <laughs> Um, I think we we've covered a big part of it, but uh, would you just want to sort of finish up an introduction? Uh, so you're you're born and raised in Sherbrooke in uh, in Quebec. Um, do you want to maybe tell a little bit more about you know how you got into biathlon and and the, the steps sort of or the phases you went through to get to the national team, etc. Oh yeah, a couple steps to get to the national team and to the Olympics. Uh, at first, biathlon has never been. Um, and I say that with all the respect I have for a sport. It's never been my favorite sport. I've always preferred. <laughs> uh, I've always preferred uh, running, cross country running. That's what I've been oh. doing uh, a lot when I was in college, when I was in high school, uh, when I was at university. Uh, I raced cross country running at a very high level. I really enjoyed it, and it's so simple, right? You just put a pair of mm -hmm. shoes on, and then you run and. No need to go to a range, no need to to drive to a ski center or to, to take the bus or just go from home. Uh, also very accessible, like cheap, cheap sports. So everyone can do it. So the level is higher at a local level, um, mm. at a local stage. And um, yeah, and so anyways, so I was doing uh, cross-country skiing with my parents and then they registered me for a race. I really enjoyed it. And then I registered for the ski club. And uh, it turns out it was, yeah, half an hour drive from home. My parents liked it, but then it would be always Saturday and Sunday. And so we would cut our weekends to go to other ski centers. Mm -hmm. uh, they found out there was a biathlon club in town. So like downtown Sherbrooke, we would shoot in the, in the little, uh, so it would be air rifle. We would shoot in mm -hmm. the park downtown and that would be a five minute drive or a 10 minute drive or could even bike there so that was fun mm. um so i did that then because it was closer to home and also it was in the on the weekdays so we would have their weekends off and yeah it turns out my parents got trapped because when i got to 13 14 <laughs> or 15 i had to start shooting 22 rifle and that was an hour away from home every saturday mm. and every sunday so <laughs> but There's yeah no way turns back. Out, sorry there was no way back 
<laughs> yeah, there was no way back because it turns out I was good. And then the coaches told me, oh, well, you should keep doing it and all that. And I was like, well, okay, I'll keep doing it because I was in it. And I don't know, I never, yeah, every year I was asking myself, oh, do I really want to keep doing that? And I was like, nah. Mm -hmm. But turns out something always kept me in. Something is always there. And I'm always like, oh, yeah, it's fun. I have like a lot of pleasure doing that. I, I enjoy it. I, I like racing. I like also just the, just the thing, like mixing shooting with the, with the race. So yeah, yeah. turns out I, I stayed in the sport until a moment in the Cégep. So I was racing a lot in Cégep. I went to a junior world champs for cross country running, but I've also been to uh, wow. biathlon world juniors and also biathlon Canada games. And all those were, events were fun. And then at some point I was like, well, I've done what I wanted to do in biathlon and now I just want to go in running. It's sim more simple. I can do it with, with, uh, with sport. I was also thinking about going to NCAA for running. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped biathlon and then, yeah, it took me six months. I saw pictures of people racing in the winter and then I, I called my coach back and I said, well, <laughs> you know what? And and yeah, since that point, I've been back. It took me a year after that to join the the first World Cup event, or uh, maybe two years, whatever. And then I just kept, yeah, kept working with it and ended up at the Olympics. So uh, my story, I'd say, is always like coming back to biathlon, wanting to quit yeah. it. But there's something in there that I really like. There's something in this sport that kept me in, and I I don't really know what. Uh, I'm always asking myself this question, like, should I keep going or not? But I end up keep doing it, and I, I really like it. I like that. You made it sound so easy. You just kept working at it, and whoop, you ended up at the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> just stumbled into it. Yeah, I could have told you about a lot of injuries, a lot of uh, yeah. questions, a lot of <laughs> – but, yeah, it's yeah quicker like that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, you know, we, we, we've heard a little bit about um, – you know, sort of the uh, east-west rivalry a little bit from uh, from Scott Gow and from from Matthias. Um, <laughs> I don't know if being from Quebec, if you experienced that or if you if you sensed that at all. You know, sort of a, a Quebec versus uh, versus Canmore of uh, rivalry. Uh, well, that's funny. I think there's been a thing uh, when I was younger because uh, they had quite a big group of athletes here in Quebec. And mm -hmm. uh, they had, well, I know Marco, uh, Claude, Audrey, uh, Jeep. Um, yeah, and, and then a couple others also. I don't know, I don't know if they, they made it. But yeah, it's, uh, so yeah, Vince, Dave, all that. And they, I think there was a thing. And then they shut down the National Center here. So there was nothing yeah. anymore. So did they kill the rivalry by uh, shutting down the this training center? I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah, maybe, maybe. But I wasn't there. I wasn't around for that. Uh, but I know it's been um, as they shut down the training center here in Quebec City for the national team. Like there's still a, a biathlon facility and all that. It still is a, a Quebec uh, training center. But they didn't recognize it as a national training center. And so that uh, wasn't very helpful for me to reach the, mm -hmm. or not to reach, but to be recognized as in a good environment. Uh, mm -hmm. I have everything I need here. Um, of course, like the coaches would like me to, to be in Canmore, but I've been able to, uh, 
to do the work. I've been able to do the testing and I have my own training center here. So I'm training with the mm -hmm. uh, cross country training center, uh, CNEPH, mm -hmm. Centre National d'Entraînement Pierre Harvey. Uh, works very well. But yeah, about that rivality, I'd say, uh, yeah, a lot of sport I know uh, here in Quebec, they just, they just want to show we're able to do it here. Uh, we just mm -hmm. want to show that we're able to do it in our own language without getting out of, of like we could say our country, but it's just how we feel like we, for a lot of people, we feel home here and we don't when we go away. And uh, I think it's a general feeling a lot of people can get. Uh, so you were saying that a lot of people were listening in Europe. Uh, people are still very happy to, to go see other people in other countries or in other nations or whatever but yeah i don't know it's uh there's some kind of a we don't want to go out if we, if we don't have to i mean i'm mm -hmm. very happy every time i go to canmore uh it just for for a full year environment i i'm just very happy to be able to have what i have here and to be able to to train in my environment in a certain way so uh so yeah that east and west rivality i wouldn't say there's anything uh in the in the battling uh, team right now uh, that's mm -hmm. uh that would be similar to a rivality like we we work together pretty well uh yeah. with the athletes too we have uh so in, in the last four years that i've been racing with them on the world cup uh yeah we created connections and all that and so it's it's going very well but for sure there's like it's it's been a, a bit of work to demonstrate that we have the we have what we need here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, well I think and, you know sorry, go ahead, Dirk. Well, I was just gonna say for people who don't know, I you know, and me being an American, probably the wrong person to be talking about this, but uh, <laughs> uh, Quebec, right? So there was the the vote on independence that that didn't go through right back. I can't remember when that was. Um, but uh, so Quebec itself. Time. Yeah, so Quebec itself is sort of like a, sort of has a little bit of a, uh, an independent spirit, and and so I think that sort of is reflected there, you know, in uh, in what you were just saying. Yeah, it is reflected quite a bit in sport, I'd say, because uh, there is Team Quebec and all that, and so it always, mm -hmm. I'd say, come back a bit, and uh, not that everyone necessarily believes it, the 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 strongest when they're racing, but for sure there's a there's that vibe that's still hanging around, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely notice when I'm meeting people from Quebec, there's a certain pride in being from there that I don't sense as strongly from mm -hmm. other provinces. So I, I, I think that's a positive thing. And I, and I, and you were saying, you know, there's a little bit of rivalry, and I also think that's a very healthy, healthy thing to have, right? To uh, to have some extra motivation, maybe or yeah. Um. So, I I read a interview that you did with Faster Skier a couple of years ago, and I was going to ask you is is uh, the book you mentioned then is that still your favorite book? Is that the twenty four point thing? I'm not sure what it, I just found a found an interview yeah. with you on in Faster Skier. Do you remember what what your favorite book was? Uh, let me guess. Was it Des Souris des Hommes? No, it was Asterix. Asterix. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it, I thought it was funny because uh, a lot of people in, in Canada don't even know what that is. And mm -hmm. of course, with your, your Belgian and, yeah. and Dutch roots. It totally uh, makes sense know. that I put that. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it totally makes sense, too, that I, I didn't book a, 
put the book. I just put the uh, comic book, right? Yeah. 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 And I, I have all of, all of the, uh, the books. I have them right here. If you're ever in, uh, in this area again, you're welcome to have a, have a peek at those. Um, oh, that's cool. And then Jordan found uh, you're also exploring another sport. Yeah. Yeah. It looked like uh, you were doing some, uh, was that, uh, was that uh, practicing, was that freestyle skiing? Uh, Ari, Ariels, I, yeah. I'm never able to do it, to say it in English. We, we call it the <laughs> ski acrobatic, but hmm. Ariels, is that it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's you it. Go. You nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Was so, that your so <laughs> go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, was that was that your first time doing it? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, it was was quite fun. Uh, <clears throat> so there's that girl uh, Marion. She's from Sherbrooke, and she was at the Olympics and uh, mm-hmm. got a medal and all that. And uh, yeah, we were chatting. I was asking, hey, like, could I try at some point? And uh, <laughs> and she was like, yeah, sure. And like, I, I also was hanging out with the with the coach and. Uh, I was telling them that my girlfriend, she really likes like circus stuff and all that. And, and yeah, so it turns out we arranged that. And uh, so we went together. And, and so Marion and Rémy, so the coach and the athlete, they showed us how to do it. And it's quite impressive. You get on that slope and it's not snow, right? You have to put the helmet mm-hmm. on and all yeah. that. Because if you fall, it's, I don't know if it's worse than roller skiing. It's not concrete, but it's, I don't know, whatever. It's, uh, so yeah, we went through all the steps of like getting from the, not like yeah. from the flat. And then we have to practice the turn to get into the slope. And then on this, on the, on the not so steep slope and then on the steepest slope. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, well, we go pretty high <laughs> and you just jump <laughs> in the water and, uh, very happy. We tried it in the pool and not on the snow because on the snow. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh. And yeah, also first like, time I did it, I lost my ski. Yeah, the, the ski oh just no. <laughs> like my boot open when I jam- I jumped and I went in the slope. And then so I had also uh, I don't know Jordan if you also roller ski a bit, but uh, I, I I have I would not yeah. say I roller ski. Okay, yeah. but so there's skate boots and there's also yeah. classic boots. And when you skate you roller ski classic, you have way less stability. And mm-hmm. so it felt for me like I was on one foot in an alpine boot. So that was all right. Mm-hmm. The other foot, it felt like a classic boot on an alpine ski about to hit a jump. <laughs> so it didn't feel good. And then I fell in the water and then my ski fell and I had to swim down and to, to catch it. It was like four meters deep. That was, that was quite Oh, deep. man. Uh, but yeah, and then, then just went all right. I readjusted the boots and, and yeah. went, went all right. But yeah, it's very fun. Very fun to do. Also, very fun to just go on that steep slope, hit a jump, and not being worried about anything because you fall in the water. Mm, uh, yeah. Turns out I was still, I wouldn't say scared, but I was apprehending the, fall, the, the landing every time because it mm-hmm. still hits a bit. And mm-hmm. then the day after, both me and my girlfriend were a bit sore of like all the different muscles that were working. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of pleasure just trying that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I saw that, and I was thinking, you know, because over the course of doing this, we've uh, we've heard about uh, Egil Yolande and his ski jumping, and uh, Matthias was telling us about his hella skiing, and it's like, man, biathletes have a lot of varied interests, and in, uh, you know, going and doing doing fun things. And every time I think about it, I was like, man, if I was your coach, I would be having a heart attack that you're out there doing that. But <laughs> you know, I guess jumping into a pool of water, there's only so much damage yeah. you can do. Well, they heard Don't about it. He's going to make us cut it out. That's <laughs> well, all right. You know, I went and, it's, and uh, didn't get injured. So now this story can go on. 
Um, I had one more question uh, before we get into some general questions we always do. Um, what's your thoughts about the rule changes that the uh, the IBU came out with, sp- specifically with uh, taking the World Championships out of the World Cup score and the new points system? Oh, I didn't know about that. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, you know now. Now I know, yeah. I know it's been discussed uh, in the last year. Some people were very happy some people were a bit disappointed i think uh yeah a big factor in that is that the um, some athletes from strong nations so i can think about the uh, antonin from france right he's he's very good he's on the world cup rankings but he sometimes just like on the french team some people don't get to start world champs because they only mm-hmm. have four spots at world champs but six spots mm-hmm. on the world cup and then I get to start um, the I get to start world champs, and so like it's a chance for us to get ahead of people that are better than us in the World Cup rankings. And so mm. it's just I think it's just bad. Like it's it's just sad that those people can't start world champs. I think if I would have made the rule, I would have uh, just opened the spots for world champs for six athletes for the top nation so everyone that's racing world cup could also race world chance but that might right. not be the spirit they want uh it does make sense uh so then the world cup is it's is a is a different thing than world champs and it also brings a different focus to world champs uh mm-hmm. people i don't know it just the olympics were like that this year yeah and it was all right uh it's just too bad because we had good racing at the olympics and didn't count in the rankings i would have been way higher in the rankings if the olympic counted but then for other people we know it's different pressure we know it's different people racing uh sometimes like some people get to go and some people don't uh that are not the same people as the the world cup so i think it's a decision that makes sense um and yeah, I think we'll we'll deal with it. Uh, some some athletes, I think, are like some strong athletes are going to be happy about that. I think because mm-hmm. uh, they're going to be happy not to not to lose points over the course of the world world championships when right. they are not allowed to race. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and the point changes. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I think now the world or the the number one in a World Cup race will get seventy five points. And then it, you know, kind of trickles down, but it's, so they've basically given more points to the higher ranked athletes. Mm. Um, to me, it, it kind of feels like it just creates a bigger gap between the, say the elite mm-hmm. uh, racers and, uh, and, uh, and the racers close, closer uh, below them. Um, yeah. But yeah, well, I, I don't win races that often. <laughs> So, <laughs> not yet not yet not yet uh yeah i think about that the yeah i think they were it maybe it, it you won't need as much consistency now to stay high in mm-hmm. the rankings uh what was fun with the 60 points is that even if you're winning every race you still have to race to be on top yeah. you still yeah. have to keep going and then the the winner of the world cup isn't decided until like last year was it uh a week before the last race that Quentin was uh 
being told that he was for bib. sure going to be the yellow bib until the end, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so that, I think that was fun. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't look at the points that much. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, seventy-five, and then you know, I'll have to look at the chart. But then it still goes to fortieth. To the 40th yes, place. Yes, I believe so. I think that's going to be the yeah, same. And and after point. maybe rank six or seven, it, it's back on the normal points. Mm-hmm. Per, yeah, so way rank. more points for top top three yeah. and top six. Yeah. And then the other thing is they don't have the uh, drop the worst two results anymore. Oh, they cut that. They cut that. And then and one of the uh, reasoning for having more points for the top is that sort of it's an alternative way to, you know, if you're sick, then at least you have a chance to to get back more easily. Because if you win, you yeah. get 75 instead of 60. But well, you see about the, those two drop results. That is a thing I think we were doing right to have some drop results because, uh, yeah, people were saying that it brings some instability in the in the World Cup ranking because then mm-hmm. like some people some results are being cut on the on the last weekend and all that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's an important thing for the athletes to allow themselves to not race. You know, you have mm-hmm. two two races you can skip if you're sick, and now if you need all those points every every week every week then you're going to kind of force yourself to race right and so we yeah. were discussing it with the with the team like some like very informal but what if i don't know you're kind of put, putting a pressure on the athletes to race every race whatever the, their condition is of course the athlete can can decide not to start it's always an athlete decision but you know as as a group that you're kind of forcing the athletes to do it like would it would it put uh, more pressure or open more doors for athletes to do how to say that uh, make weird decisions to still Mm, race. mm -hmm. So let's not talk about like taking medications or anything like that. But if you're feeling very sick and you know, you need those points and you know, you don't have any scratch races where we were just talking about two races a year. Right. And those were the only opportunities to, to kind of say, well, I'm taking it off. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I thought it made it made sense. Uh, I'm I'm sad they they cut that. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure they like we put we put all that in a survey we did uh, with the IBU. So they have mm-hmm. the they have our intake. Um, so yeah, maybe the other athletes were favorable to that, and or maybe they decided it was it was still better like that. But yeah, that's something I. I thought it was very good. It was like allowing the athletes to just stop racing if they didn't feel like it and not yeah. not giving them any points, but just like, you know, it's normal to get injured. It's normal not to feel it one or two days in the, in the year. Like we were not talking about every second race that doesn't count, just two in the mm-hmm. year that were mm-hmm. kind of, it's all right. You don't, you don't need, if you don't feel like it, if you're safe, if you're injured, if you DNF, if you get a crash or whatever, just don't think about it. You have two scratch races. Yeah, uh, I mm-hmm. thought it was. I thought it was fine, but yeah. Uh, that's an interesting point because I, I must admit I was never a big fan of it. Um, just well, one reason that that it sort of created the confusion of what is the real score or the the, the standings. Um, mm-hmm. But I also I I felt that um, um, it it was the intent was for people when they're sick not to race. But I felt like it was used a lot as more of a planning tool for the 
for the season, you know, like when the Olympics are coming that, oh, I'm going to skip that race and that race so I can, you mm-hmm. know, do altitude training instead. So I kind of felt that, that the intent was good, but it wasn't really used that way. But it, it's great to hear your perspective on that. And uh, um, it, yeah, I, I do think sure with the new it. rules, with mm-hmm. the new rule, with more points for the leaders, I think, you know, for someone like uh, Tyria Bo or, or Johannes Tingus Bo, yeah, sure. If they miss a race now because of sickness, they have a chance to to catch up by by winning mm-hmm. and getting more points for the win. But I mean, there's a lot of athletes that just having one win in a season would always already be a, a major accomplishment. So for mm-hmm. them, it doesn't really doesn't really apply that way. But so yeah. it, it in general, I just feel like it it favors the elite of the sport mm-hmm. and it creates a bigger gap. Um, between them and and uh, the people that are striving to be elite, uh, mm-hmm. and I, yeah. I say that with all respect because I, you know, yeah. what you're doing to me is elite. But uh, within the sport, you know, we have a, a handful that. Well, are there's always of... someone faster. Only yeah. only the fastest doesn't have any faster than him. But yeah, 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 yeah. Um, should we move on to the standard question, Jordan? Uh, I was going to ask a couple more questions. Uh, yeah, yeah. This this kind of goes back to talking about your career, and you you, you like I said, I, I was sort of teasing you for skipping over a few things on your uh, on your your uh, your biography there. But uh, I you know just just even taking the most brief glance of your uh, you know your finishes and the overview of your career, like you can definitely see that you're on the upswing. I mean, you had your best career finishes at the most at the Olympics, um, and it definitely feels like you know you're you're ending the season strong. So. You know, and only at age twenty-five, like, do you feel like you're you're really like you're you're finding new things to focus on, like you're finding new areas to improve? And what do you uh, what do you account for? You know, for having those uh, those strong finishes at the end of the year, was there something that you figured out? Uh, for a strong finish at the end of the year, there's one big thing. This year is the war, <laughs> so we were missing mm-hmm. fifteen of the best athletes in the World Cup. Uh, so that did affect my results up. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. but at the Olympics, everyone was there uh, at the Olympics. I had the best week I've ever, I've ever had in world cup, uh, qualifying for a mass start for the first time ever. So the week before the Olympics, we were in Antles and I was just watching the mass start and I, I didn't race it. I never raced the mass start before. And I was just calling home and I was telling my girlfriend, Hey, like, it's just too bad. It's going to be over this year because, uh, I don't know. I was thinking it was the, the last year I was doing biathlon uh, just before the games. I was kind of uh, in the down and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, not having many good results. And I was looking at the master and telling her, yeah, it's just too bad. I would never have been able to reach that highest level, that level of the 30 best athletes in the world racing together for that big show, the most prestigious race in, mm-hmm. in biathlon. <laughs> Turns out the week after I did it at the Olympics and got, got 18th, uh, that was great. It wasn't like it was my top result, uh, and yeah, I also qualified for that. Having a crash in the in the sprint in the sorry in the pursuit on the last loop mm-hmm. in the pursuit, like so, I I did very well at the individual, then did very well at the sprint, and then in the pursuit, I left the range in twenty fifth or twenty sixth or something. And then I catch two guys, and then Felix the wax stick on the side of the track. He says, "Hey, like." Just don't think about anything. Don't do anything dumb and you'll get in the mass start. He said, like, you're safe. Just don't crash, basically. And what <laughs> happened, uh, like, 1K before the finish lane, uh, someone passes me in the inside and then their ski touches my my ski and then the clip 
like the fix opens and then my ski falls and, and then I fail and I lost I lost five or six positions on it. So I thought that was it. I thought I'd be out of the master. Uh, turns out it worked out. Uh, turns out I was mm-hmm. the last spot. But um, yeah, all those things, I don't know. The Olympics went very well. I'd say the biggest difference is that I was healthy this year. Uh, mm-hmm. it's just it's just what it is i for the last four or five years i've been having a lot of difficulties uh mononucleosis i think you just call it mono in english uh, yep. so i had that the year so a year so that was 2018 the mm-hmm. year that should have been my breakthrough year in a certain way and so yep. it didn't work uh, the year after just before trials i uh, twisted my ankle uh, it turns out I've been able to make it to World Cup still uh, for the first time. And yeah, so I did my first World Cup and then second World Cup in the Oberhof. So maybe you've seen the video, but I just felt and I had a big uh, concussion. I yeah. refused to accept it. I was uh, kind of hiding it from myself, from coaches, from doctors. Uh, that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> it got worse week after week um, up to a point like people just noticed it right i had to i had to stop i i've been sent home i was still able to race i was still able to race at that level it wasn't good but i was still i was still in the world cup and not being the last guy every day so mm-hmm. that was um yeah and then i had to recover from that it took me 3 months and then first week i was back full time i had another concussion and so uh, roller skiing so my chin on the uh, on the asphalt and so that took a full year and a half to kind of come back. And uh, after that year and a half, well, I had I just got COVID. And COVID hit me, I'd say, yeah. twice as hard as mono uh, somehow. Like I've seen some athletes having COVID and two weeks after they were winning World Cups. But didn't happen for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. all those kind of problems that yeah. I had since I got back into biathlon after the break, I kind of took uh, five or six years ago. All those problems kind of got solved in September, October last year, mm-hmm. and it just worked out. I was healthy. It was so fun to finally get that get that good feeling of racing, having no yeah. no problem. And so that's what, like, I, I wasn't at a very high level, like starting a season. It, it was a high level for me. It's not a high level comparing to other athletes in biathlon, but I was kind of finally getting back to my first World Cups feeling. So first time I started a, an individual World Cup, I got 33rd and and then 35th. And then I never, I've never been able to have such a good weekend until the Olympics. Uh, so finally, very good feeling four years later. And that's kind of what kept me in in the, in the sport for this year. Because uh, I know I'm, I'm healthy right now. I'll be able to do a full summer of good training. I have mm-hmm. more maturity too in my own training and my uh, preparation and the in my shooting practice too. So so yeah, I'd say that's uh yeah, that's a bit more of a of a, of detailed stuff and and what kind of explains that I've been better in the in the in the later season this year mm-hmm. is that I was finally healthy and I've been able to build on it because uh like being healthy in September, you both know that you don't start to train in September, right? You need all the preparation from May. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been able still with my coach here to figure something good and and to make it work. And so I'm very looking forward for next season to see what can happen with a full preparation. Yeah. 
Yeah, you were just never able to gain that momentum, uh, right? Because every every time that you were starting to get it rolling, you know, you just uh, you had whether it was the mono or the the ankle or the COVID, it was just one mm-hmm. more one stumbling block after another. And yeah. now you had uh, you had a, a good long run there of uh, of health, and we got to see what you could do, and you did it on the, on the biggest stage. Yeah, yeah. And I had, I had another question for you that, uh, that's sort of unrelated. Uh, it's actually completely unrelated. So on your, your picture there from the, uh, from the IBU, you have this enormous mane of hair. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you still got, still got pretty pretty decent amount right now. So is the goal, are you going to grow it back out again or uh, are you going to keep it more, more trimmed down? It feels, feels good now trimmed down <laughs> yeah i can yeah i can tell you the story why it why it's been cut so i didn't i didn't cut it since high school um oh my gosh not not a single clip or whatever and yeah. uh yeah people were finding it funny on the world cup because uh, i was uh not the only one with long hair but the only one with long hair like that <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah. and people found it funny when i first showed up on the world cup um yeah i never felt like cutting it and then one day i was just about to go in the shower and it always takes such a long time to dry and uh, <laughs> and yeah i just decided it was the last i just decided that the last time i waited for it to dry was the last what was like yeah a couple of days before so i just took a <laughs> pair of scissors and i cut it before taking the shower and uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's why I don't know what's gonna happen. It's already like twice as long as what it was uh, when I cut it. So it's it's getting. I forgot how fast it would grow because when I was long, it didn't it didn't feel like it was growing anymore. Um, yeah. And yeah, now it I just see how fast it grows. Yeah, but I don't know. I still have all the hair in the bag, so I can make a wig for whoever wants it. <laughs> but, hey, uh, you can make yeah. one for RJ. <laughs> yeah. <Hey. laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, no more hair. And uh, there's always that guy from uh, Nordic Focus. He takes the pictures every every fall for the uh, for IBU, and he always had to to kind of cut around my hair for like on uh, on his uh, whatever Photoshop thing. And he's gonna be. I think he's gonna be the happiest guy this year. <laughs> uh. So how does yeah. it, that actually work? Do you is it on the first World Cup that they have a booth where everybody has to go in to take a picture? Is that yeah 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 that's how it is. Right. And then also they have a company. So I'm with Solomon. So there's also a stand with Solomon. So we take pictures with the new products and and okay. they share all that. And then there's also the video you see when the World Cup starts when we just yep. we just turn and we go like that. And yep. yeah, so they also have that. So we do everything it takes. Uh, we also do equipment check and I don't know, it's just, yeah, first moment of uh, first World Cup is the first moment we're all together. So they get that set up and then they do it again at the, the first World Cup in January or second mm-hmm. or whatever, because there's always movement from IBU Cup to World Cup. So, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's when that's when it happens. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. You you mentioned checking equipment, and it made me think of your rifle. I was just curious: is that your rifle you're using now? Is it the same that you started with when you started shooting twenty two, or like have you had many in between? Or the barrel is the same. Uh, so I started on a rental rifle from uh, from my own home club, and then when okay. I was uh, fifteen or sixteen, I bought one from uh, 
from uh, David Grégoire, so a former racer from Quebec here. And he he sold it to me with the stock. And so the stock was the right size at the time. And then, well, I don't know, the stock shrinked. Maybe I grow. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so whatever, I had to adjust it. And then when I showed up on the first World Cup with my... Uh, with my wooden stuck with all, like pieces of duct tape all around and and uh, <laughs> so the pavel so the shooting coach he brought yeah. me to uh bachman so that's a that's a place in uh, in italy uh, where this guy makes carbon fiber stocks that are very easy to adjust and so i got that and i've been using that for uh four years now it was it was quite expensive but uh mm, i can imagine it was fun. Yeah. and then i still I still have the old stock. Uh, I think the old stock looks better. It's all it's all in wood. Look very cool. Uh, but yeah, I'm not using it anymore. So uh, there's a kid here. He's gonna start using it soon. Nice. But, yeah. So, mm-hmm. but then the, the barrel is the same. Never changed the barrel. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, the guy. So there's always the service guy from Anschutz uh, mm-hmm. that's there every I don't know every month on the World Cup. He shows up. And uh, he's been uh, taking care of my rifle since the first um, first World Cup I've done. And so he's wow. cleaning it in the little corners I'm not able to get to. He's uh, dismantling yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. There's also, uh, well, Pavel has a, a lot of connections for people that know how to work with rifles too. And so a lot of people are taking it, taking good care of it. Uh, I do my best, but there's there's just some things I'm not I'm not qualified to do. So yeah, do it. yeah. yeah. But yeah, barrel oh, just that's... doesn't wear out. So it's uh, if yeah. you take good care of it, it's going to be good forever. And and how long did it take you to sort of adjust to the new stock and and make make you feel like that was the one and that's the one you're comfortable with? Um, the stock itself has a lot of room for adjustment. So it, mm-hmm. I don't know. We took like half an hour, maybe an hour, with Pavel to check it to adjust everything. That was in the so the Bachman guy. He's uh, he's making stocks, but he's also making uh, guitars and violin and all that. And so we were in oh, his wow. office. I was just laying down on the concrete, and we were working on that, choosing the best pieces. And, all. and then we left with all the all the equipment, and then we spent another, I'd say, half an hour, maybe an hour, working on it. And then I do a shooting practice, and then after a week, we just check it again. We we just mm-hmm. a bit more, and. Um, we're always adjusting it. I'm still yeah. like, I'm going to do some more adjustment. I have uh, so pieces of rubber here um, that I'm going to for like shape the way I want. I have also pieces of wood and, and you just work with all that to, to make new pieces. I know uh, Well, you've been talking with Scott, he's been a lot in the 3d printing thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, huh. uh, that's a big piece of the future in the rifle, uh, like rifle stock adjustment. You just mm-hmm. make a mold, maybe in the in very soft plastic, and then you just scan it and print it. And uh, I think yeah. people people really like that. Yeah, but there's there's always something better that can be done. It's not going to make you shoot better, but it's going to make you feel better with your rifle. It's going to make you be more gentle with the trigger. It's going to make you more comfortable, and therefore you can also be like a bit faster if you feel more comfortable with your setup mm-hmm. with the rifle and all that you're gonna you're gonna be more comfortable to shoot faster with with what you have so yeah there's yeah. a lot of gain to have a very well adjusted rifle it's not if you're missing it's not because of the stock 
But if you're able to go faster, if you're able to hit closer to the center, all that, well, that those are all things mm -hmm. that a stock can, can help do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can even say from the lowest and lowest of amateur level, just changing the standing block from a, uh, a wooden hand carved piece that fit the previous owner of my rifle really well, but yeah. not so much for me to yeah. a piece that doesn't hurt my fingers anymore makes makes a huge difference because <laughs> it, it did every time i would go stand shooting it would hurt my fingers yeah just because it didn't fit and then you know yeah. you just take that with oh well it's like you know half a minute or a minute whatever it takes uh yeah. to shoot and then you move on but uh not to have that makes it makes a huge difference already so well for yeah. sure does yeah no it's uh it's funny yeah with the 3d printing now it's it's making everything easier uh but yeah it's very it's the connection between you and the barrel right you want it to be mm -hmm, good mm -hmm. it's uh without it it would be very hard to just shoot with a barrel no stuff so you really yeah. need that piece and you you want that piece to be good yeah that's yeah. for sure did uh do you know if there's any limitations on what you can use from the ibu rules side like it is 3d print parts allowed oh on the totally. World Cup? i think you can yeah. do whatever you want yeah just as long as it's a I certain weight. Yeah. Sorry? There, there's weight restrictions on a rifle, right? Yeah, a minimum. I uh, don't know if there's a maximum. I don't think so. Oh, okay. But yeah, there's a there's a minimum. And I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to have any motor or mechanic stuff in it, right? Right. So like right. maybe some people would like to have, a, I don't know, some something that like puts a mechanic pressure on your on your shoulder or like a hook mm -hmm. that comes behind the shoulder or whatever there's for sure a shape to res to respect and also there's a there's a maximum distance between the the lowest point of the hand block structure like for the for the left hand support hand yeah. uh, and the middle of the barrel and that used to be 12 uh, centimeters and now it's 14 and so i'm going to bring it to 14 because Okay. I need more height there because I'm aiming always a bit too low when I'm standing. I'm mm. aiming lower than the than the target. So there are some rules like that. But on the material you use, I think you can have whatever. Okay. Uh, there's rules for sure, like for the stickers and sponsors that you put on it and for like the image. Yeah. But on the material being used, if you want to have a, a concrete stock, then you're probably free to do <laughs> You just gave me an idea here for a, for a new... Um bolt action that you actually yeah. have a mechanism where you just pull the rifle in your shoulder to uh oh well you see that yeah that would probably it. be not illegal <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there's a there's a rule book i haven't read through uh all of it but uh there's a yeah i, I think have you uh i've uh, you've you've seen trevor right last year yeah. he had that like weird little flop thing to have a different, uh, to adjust the length of his stock from prone to standing. So when he would shoot oh, standing, no, he would have, um, so it was on the butt plate, he would have a, a thing oh. that would flip down. And so it would make his stock longer. Then when he would hmm. be prone, he would flip it up and would be shorter. Or was it the okay. opposite? I don't know, but he had like a weird mechanism going on. And he's not the first one to do it. It was the first one I saw like doing it around me, but I know okay. it's, it's existed before. And so those kind of mechanisms are are allowed, are possible. But uh, yeah, yeah. Well, have you have you ever had the chance to see uh, Sven Fischer's rifle? No. What was but, that? So he used to have uh, the the bolt mechanism. 
he had this whole handle that he twisted. Oh, so I when he would shoot, yeah. he, he would just twist his handle. And then I saw an interview recently, which was taken years and years and years ago, but uh, I only saw it recently. He actually, in the uh, the shoulder piece, the, the wooden shoulder piece, there was a little, like, like a little door that had a tiny little screwdriver in it. So if ever a bullet was stuck, he he would in you know, worst case scenario if it was really stuck and he couldn't get it out with his finger, he actually had a little screwdriver to take out the bullet, and it was stuck. Well, it was in the rifle, hidden in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. <laughs> and and he showed that, and and I don't think he's ever used it in the World Cup, so um, I don't think people knew about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm assuming it was legal, but uh, yeah, the. Uh, the, uh, the the person that interviewed him was like basically standing there with the mouth open, like "What the hell is this?" And uh, he's like, "Yeah, I carried that my whole career, and and uh, was yeah. always this this more more of a mindset that if I ever get stuck, I have a, a little yeah. tool to to uh-huh. fix it." Yeah, well, you're telling that, and I'm remembering when we were on the Quebec Cup, so much younger, we were sometimes carrying a needle on our stock, so we would just tape a needle on the stock to uh to open the sites if we had any problem with the snow oh, so on okay. very snowy days so we would use the yeah. snow caps but it would always mm-hmm. happen to someone that the the site would still be blocked with snow and so some people would just carry a needle taped on their rifle and boom you wow. just take it off with your gloves do the best you can you just have to make sure not to drop into the mat for the next people that's going to lay down but right yeah yeah uh, yeah, yeah, now that you say that, I remember we've done we've done things like that a bit. 